Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. And we are recording right now a Live with a Studio Audience episode at Teal College in Greenville, Pennsylvania. And this episode has actual other human beings in the room, not just our usual triumvirate (laughs) around the table. Other human beings, would you make noise where you are so people listening will know there's other humans in the room? (laughs) See, perfect. Yeah, just like that. Because, We're not making people up. Yeah. <laughs> All the people around the table today are visible people. No six-foot-tall rabbits. Um, the reason we are especially excited today is we have folks with us at the Northwest Pennsylvania Synod of the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's Synod Assembly, gathered, and they are here with us as we are recording this episode, and we thought it would be fun to invite your thoughts, conversation, starting points. And so we're just going to start with a bunch of quickie conversations, short conversations in this episode today. And we had a great conversation before we started recording, or at least a great prompt. Would you be willing to start and and say again that great question you had? Okay, my name is Dick Melzer from St. John's Lutheran Erie. My dilemma is, uh, my question is, uh, the uh, impact that uh, religion today is having on our younger generation, uh, uh, I guess specifically the uh, traditional service uh, is it? Are they against it, or are they for it, or wh- why are they losing interest uh, as compared to uh, a traditional uh, service? Do they do they really uh, have some things uh, issues there that turn them on, or are they not interested in that? I guess uh, I mean, is there a right direction, or a, a good direction, or a better direction, or whatever? Yeah. So in your question, I'm primarily hearing the question of youth in worship in particular about why youth are either not there or are there. And in particular, is there a certain worship style that seems to draw and attract youth in particular? That's a better description, yes. Okay. Just making sure that I was... That's good clarification. Catching on to the question. So I guess one thing I would start with, and this is to say, um, in a sense, I'm interested in the question, what draws a particular age group? But there's also a piece of me that feels like the central question is not what am I getting out of worship at whatever age you're demographic at, but like how is worship centering us on God? And I remember a teacher when I was in seminary, he used to say he felt he had most effectively worshipped when he didn't like any of the songs, hated the liturgy, and hated the accompaniment because it reminded him in those moments it wasn't about him, this is about, you know, this is about being centered on God. There's a piece of me that in this whole conversation, I don't think it's wrong to talk about uh, how do we get, uh, what, what is appealing to what age group or demographic, but I want to start with, at the heart of it, it's really, it's less interesting about whether I had a good time or bad time, it's more about how does this reorient my head and my heart toward God who is the subject and center of our worship life. That said, I think there are, maybe we also make assumptions about what traditional or what contemporary, what those styles even mean. I think sometimes people go, you know, traditional, like the church has always done it with organ music, but wait, organs have only been around for, what, 500 years, 600 years. And like sometimes I'll, I'll hear folks say, you, we need to sing those old classic hymns, you know, from the 1800s, and we forget, oh, we were singing hymns for you know 1,800 years before that, too. Or my favorite is when people talk about new contemporary styles of music and worship, and it's older than me. Right, right, right. I think it's from the 90s. You know? Right, right. right. And I think some people think traditional is 
um, when they think traditional, they think more like you all as Lutherans, you know, with the with the high liturgy and the very kind of scripted service, where you all would probably consider my worship service with a little bit less liturgy, maybe slightly more contemporary, even though we mostly use an organ or piano, you know, in my worship service. So there's, there's all kinds of different ideas of what we mean by those two different things. There's also that famous line, I think it's Jaroslav Pelikan, who says, tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Oh, and ooh, that, it's, that it's possible uh-huh. to be repeating things because we've done them this way for a long uh-huh. time and think this is the way it's supposed to be done and to have completely lost really the, the deepness of the roots mm-hmm. with the ancient, you know, the, the ancient practice of the followers of Jesus. And on the other hand, it's possible to do things that like are 2,000 years old so they're super traditional and yet that have this sort of living, breathing vitality to them. And I know there's plenty of research out there that says if you want to get into the demographics, there are, there's an impulse in, in many millennials, if we want to use that kind of jargon, who are interested in the ritual and and the practice of ancient spirituality and that it's not um it's not a matter of oh we want to attract young kids we need guitars and maybe it means that we want to attract young people oh we need to have, get out the candles and the incense because they're tapped into that i think making assumptions about this demographic group likes this or doesn't mm-hmm. like that is is wrong-headed in a sense that we're always going to be chasing mm-hmm. after trends and to me it feels like the church ought to be free of that. Like we are not in the business of selling something, so we shouldn't think in terms of PR. Like what will chase after this demographic group? More like how can we be authentic? Because I got to be honest too. Not every congregation has the ability to put on the worship and praise band with guitars or drums or an organ or whatever. Yeah. And instead of saying we got to fit this cookie cutter picture so that we can get this demographic group, it may be how can we be authentic and people get drawn to what's authentic. I think mm. if there's anything that I consistently see in literature about millennials, if you can paint with such a broad brushstroke is that millennials and gen z that comes after them um can smell out fakeness uh and that authenticity is really what's most and and that's not something you can package or take a class in or get five easy bullet points is do what you do authentically that will mean trying to do things well but also meeting like okay this is what we can do well so we're not going to pretend we're something we're not that's a sure way to get people not to come and i think ultimately the way to get any particular age group involved in worship whether it is um current gen z high school students or millennials, you know, young adults like myself, or even baby boomers, um, is to invite them to participate in leading and forming that worship service. Um, For example, uh, for those of you who can't physically see me, I'm 38 weeks pregnant. My alb a couple weeks ago stopped fitting. So (laughs) Zion had a Sunday morning where we did not have anybody wear albs because my alb didn't fit. I didn't have time to find a new one. And also, it was so warm in the sanctuary on that particular day, we were concerned about acolytes passing out. <laughs> Some of the strongest, like, oh, no, we don't like this, was our high school acolytes, who were like, this feels weird. It feels disrespectful. We don't like being up near the altar without albs. It's, this feels wrong and like we're disrespecting God. And so... That was part of the conversation the next week about it was cooler, wasn't it? Yes, it was cooler. But ultimately, even though it causes us physical discomfort, we want the albs. We want that traditional respectful feeling up by the altar. I think that's a great example of like you might not assume that it will be the 
high school aged acolytes who were leading the charge for more vestments. And yet, yeah, here it was. And that, I mean, like, great. So instead of being like, oh, no, I'm sorry, my, my cookie cutter assumption is kids are always for more casual and grownups are always for more, you know, rigidity or whatever. No, and maybe instead of re- requiring one or those other extremes, let's be authentic. And, and there are going to be moments where we decide to ditch the albs for this Sunday. And instead of assuming this is a performance and that if we get it wrong, either there will be lightning bolts from God or the audience won't come back, to treat this says this is practice it is always practice and if that's what happens in worship then one the congregation stops understanding itself as an audience and that we're not here to just please the audience of the congregation they're participants and again that means like we include them in the decision making not just some committee from on high has decreed here's how we're going to do things you'll be the audience who watch us do things Mm -hmm. and i think authentic christian worship and again i think this is an ancient ancient traditional like two thousand years kind of a thing is it's about all of us participating um in at whatever level whether it's some it's your turn to pray or your turn to read or you bake the bread but that everybody is is involved in it not we're here in a theater and someone up front or a handful of people up front perform and if I like the performance I come back again for next week or something like I think that plays into the notion that the church is selling a product rather than we're people practicing how to live like Jesus are there any statistics uh, available to show uh, what a uh, contemporary service the uh, additional instruments musical instruments uh, have an impact on the, the faith of the anybody, the older generation or the younger generation? I think that's going to be very context-dependent. I think there's going to be places where that will meet people, and like, man, what we really need here is uh, a liturgy that is has different musical style, and there's going to be other places where that doesn't make a difference. There just aren't the people, or the people who mm-hmm. would be interested in coming don't care about the musical accompaniment or things like that. And it, it may, that may be demographic, like... Uh, age group, it might even be uh, cultural background or things like that. If you've got um, all organ music and a group of people that none of them grew up singing organ, mu- you know, organ accompanied music, that's a learning curve. And you got to decide how much of your energy is spent teaching people who don't already know 16th century hymns to learn 16th century hymns, and how much of your energy is going to be sent. Oh, let's sing the songs you already know. Mm-hmm. That that's that's worth exploring, I guess. Yeah, I think for me instead of trying to find specific numbers to see how what kind of music has impacted what generation or whatever i think it would be better for your particular context is to have those conversations about what is the type of music or worship styles that have had impacts on your life what has that looked like um how has that grown your faith what has been stumbling blocks um because yeah it is super contextual for each different congregation or worship community. Now, at the same time, I'll say this about the format of music, and this is less about the musical instruments and more about maybe the, the, the substance of the, when we're talking about hymns and music and things like that. Man, if you, if you uh, even just read or wade through the text of a hymn written in the 16th or 17th or in the 18th century, man, there's a lot of dense theology in there, and you almost don't need the catechism if you had a decent set of hymns. You, oh, this is what we believe, and you would get it. There's a lot of dense theology. Um, a worship or praise refrain that is one sentence sung 20 times over again, I will learn less of the faith that way. And yet at the same time, there there is a downside to the hymns that are so dense you're not really sure what you just sang, and afterwards you're spending the sermon going, what was that all about? Or here I raise my Ebenezer, what is an Ebenezer? Now you have to spend an extra half an hour understanding what you just sang. Um, and maybe... We should look at in the in the bigger picture. If you're gonna if you're gonna spend all your time singing 
short refrains that are sung 20 times over because that's the style or that's what's popular or whatever, be prepared for people who can only think the faith in tweets. You know, like, yeah, that's, that's easy, short, 150 characters or less. Um, but if that's all you get, you can't sustain a longer train of thought. On the other hand, if all we ever sing are hymns that are so long and dense, they require a commentary for them, um, that's going to be hard for people to latch. What did we just sing about? What was that all about? And maybe there's, there's value in the variety there, even knowing there's going to be times where the really, really dense hymn connects with you, and there's going to be times where, nope, that was way over my head. I need just sing the same thing 20 times over. Well, and the beauty of the the age we live in now, I know there are several, there are bands and there are groups that will take those old hymns, those old ancient hymns, and, and contemporize them, um, possibly with slightly more updated wording so that you don't have all of these and thous and thines, mm-hmm. you know, so people mm-hmm. can actually understand them, or just, you know, bring the music a little bit more upbeat so it's sure. a little bit easier for people to sing along to, and so maybe that's a, an idea, but... Sarah, you're talking about uh, asking your folks like what worship experiences affected them. Mm-hmm. My church just did a worship survey. Um, not as many, <laughs> as many responses as I'd like to, but you know that's the church. Um, but you know we did that asking them what they liked about worship, what they didn't like, what they would like to see changed about worship, and hopes to be able to implement those things. I even asked them to write down all their favorite hymns. Um, we're going to be doing a hymn sing here in a couple of weeks at my at my church, and um, I want to be able to. And even when, when I'm planning worship down the road, like I want to be able to look at that list and be like, oh, like five people really love this hymn. Let's see where I can fit that in. And then when people like something, then they're more they're like, oh, she picked my hymn. <laughs> this is one of mine. I love this one. Mm. Uh, you know, so that's hopefully will help people feel you know more engaged, even if they're not up front leading in worship. At least they'll feel engaged because I'm choosing the stuff that they like, they want to hear. Mm. So can I ask, do we feel like we've addressed this conversation enough? Are there folks among us who are bold and brave and feeling moved that they're like, oh, yeah, I'd take a turn bringing something up for discussion, conversation? I have a question, okay. but I don't know that Good. I want to sit up there. Okay. Thank you. I'd just like to hear you all talk about it. We'll repeat the question, though, so, yeah. then, so that the microphone picks it up. Okay, so, so my question is, can I be Christian if I don't believe in heaven or hell? And if I don't believe in heaven or hell, what does, does Christianity have anything to say to me? Ooh. Wow. Man, that could easily be a series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question, the gist of the question is, because I'm sorry, I didn't memorize it, but it was an awesome question, is uh, can I be a Christian and not believe in heaven and hell? And if I don't believe in heaven and hell, is the, does the church still have something relevant to say to me? Is that what you said? All right, awesome. Okay, so here's where my brain immediately goes. I'm a church nerd, so I immediately think, oh, what did I learn in the Apostles' Creed? Um, like it, like when, when the early church got around in the first, second, third century, fourth century for the Nicene Creed about like, okay, what are the things that we think we all got to be on the, on the same page on? It's interesting to me that it centers on God and less about the geography of the afterlife. There's like this sort of like secondary sort of like, uh, even, even the phrase that Jesus descended uh, the old Latin is uh, ad inferna, w- w- often gets translated into hell, but is also translatable as to the dead, um, is, a, is a vague and fuzzy Latin phrase, which is more like he descended to the realm of the dead. So, that okay, that's not terribly helpful or specific. It seems to me like when the early church said, what's the center of, that is uh, at the beating heart of this faith of ours? It's more to be about, we've got clarity on who God is, and it's a lot harder to pin down exactly how we think or or. Uh, all agree on what heaven or hell looks like, especially because you've got early writers like a John Chrysostom who says, in the resurrection, Jesus destroyed hell and death forever. And then other later writers who's like, 
well, no, that can't really be, because hell has to be there for someone else to get thrown into. Um, that, like, the early church wasn't as uniform or clear or unequivocal about, here's the geography of heaven and hell. They were more centered on, like, here, we got, well, we, what do we got to be clear about? It's on the God who came among us in Jesus, who is still present among us by the Spirit, who created all things. Um, that's not to say that Christians don't have things to say about life beyond death, but it, it, to me it says that there's been a lot greater variety on how we've thought and talked about that than maybe people assume. Sometimes people assume Christianity is first and foremost about heaven and hell and secondarily about Jesus as the ticket by which you get there. And the early church didn't see it that way. Christianity was first and foremost about Jesus who brings the reign of God into the present moment and forever and ever, amen. Oh, and I guess that means that beyond death, he's got, still got us covered there too. Like that, that it was more like our, our doctrines of heaven and hell are secondary and first are about Jesus, which suggests to me that when the early church decided what's critical, what do we have to believe, or what are we all on the same page about, there's surprisingly little about the geography of heaven and hell. Um, and I guess that's where I'd start. There's also very little in the Bible about heaven and hell. In the Old Testament, there is Sheol. The realm of the dead, yeah. The realm of the dead. Um, and it was just the realm of the dead. There wasn't really a heaven and a hell. There wasn't like everybody goes to the same place, which is Sheol. And... In the New Testament, there is more discussion on the kingdom of God, which comes on the last day, as described in my favorite <laughs> chapter of the Bible ever, Revelation 21. Um, so, to me, when we say heaven and hell, I think I get a very specific image in my brain, which isn't necessarily from the Bible, it's from popular culture slash religion which, you know, hell is that place with all of the fire, and there's a red guy with a tail. Right, and, a and he's wearing a jumpsuit, yeah. Right, <laughs> and, you know, heaven is the place with the blue sky and the clouds. And, St. Peter's at the gates, like yeah, in all the jokes. and there's some weird chubby baby in a diaper playing a harp. Right. You know, like, it's a very specific <laughs> yeah. image in my head, but that those images aren't from the Bible at all. They're from pop culture and political cartoons. And where Jesus does, I mean, Jesus will, will regularly use a word that gets translated hell in the Gospels. The word he uses is Gehenna, which is the name for the valley where they burned the garbage outside of Jerusalem. So even Jesus isn't talking about place where the demons jump around with pitchforks. He's borrowing an image that everybody in the first century would have known. Jesus is talking about getting thrown into the outer darkness, you know, where we burn the garbage out in Gehenna. And at some point people said, oh, that's Jesus' description of hell. Well, yes and no, because Jesus usually is talking about something else when that comes up, that it's more like this is his, his way of talking about you don't want to end up, you, you, you don't want to be opposed to the reign of God, that gets thrown out in the garbage dump, and instead Jesus is more interested in talking about what the reign of God is like. I think maybe too it's important to say when the, the Bible gets around to talking about afterlife, kind of, again we talk about afterlife, but it's more like that's the life that begins now and continues on forever, that instead of picturing a change of geography that we go up to heaven or down to hell the way so much, like you say, uh, cartoons sort of depict it, the, the vision at the end of Revelation is more about God coming down to dwell with us where a whole new heaven and a whole new earth intersect. That it, and it's more about this life that really is life that begins now and, yeah, never runs out. But there's not, there's, there's not a lot that is pinned down in the details that are meant to be you got to believe that there are streets paved with gold. You got to like it's more like the the writers are trying to use the best images they can come up with to describe something that's beyond their comprehension. And it's interesting to me that none of the creeds say, and I also believe in heaven and the streets are paved with gold and the gates are pearl and diamond. It's nope; those are side things. Those are meant to be images 
the heart of it is about this God who's come among us in Jesus. I might also say a writer who I'm particularly interested in uh, from time to time is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, in some of, in, especially in his letters and papers from prison, about um, what sometimes gets translated like a, a, a secular Christianity. And his idea is to say at the heart of Christianity is about this life that is lived even right here and now for the sake of the other, the same way that Jesus lived his life for the sake of the other. And Bonhoeffer is, is interested in saying, if that's all we can agree on, let's start there. And mm-hmm. we can, in, in uh, late night conversations over cigars and, uh, and drafts of beer, talk about um, the, the, what the afterlife might be like. But the, the beating heart is about this life that is lived for the sake of others following in the example of Jesus. So I think there have been writers, thinkers, and theologians throughout Christianity, not who said, let's chuck this idea of life after death, but to say, we, it's okay that there can be variety on how we think or phrase that. And when the early, early church pinned down, here's what we've got to be clear on. It's interesting to me how little they said about your, your post-mortem address. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a quote I've seen often, I can't remember who says it, and I'm going to botch exactly how it's said, but it, you know, it, it says, basically, the message of the gospel is not about getting you into heaven, but getting heaven into you. <laughs> you know, and I, I think, like, you know, all of Jesus' kingdom of God talk, you know, and, and even the Lord's Prayer, you know, having his God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think you're, you're right, Steve. It's more about, you know, what does that look like here and now? Yes, the afterlife's part of that, you know, that, you know, life after death is part of that, but really what we can control is what we do here and now about that, you know, and so what happens after that, we, we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how that's going to play out, and that's okay, because right now what I can do is I can be living the way God wants me to live and hopes that, you know, when, when that day comes, when Jesus comes back or calls me home, you know, that just kind of continues into whatever that next form of life is for me. So half-form thought. <laughs> um, you, you just sprung board this on me. Um, years and years ago, I don't even remember where I was flying, but I was sitting in an airport lobby, and mind my own business, I must have been traveling just by myself and had nobody else around, certainly no kids around, so I was just watching, people watching. And there is this kid looking out the window, and his dad was with him, and the kid looks up at his dad and says, Dad, is that plane like the one that's hanging out there at the at the tarmac or the, the gate, whatever. Is that going to be our plane? And the dad goes, no, that's not our plane, but our plane is coming soon, buddy. And the little kid, like the dad sort of goes on his own business, and the, the kid says to himself, not even knowing that stranger me is listening in from a couple of rows over, he goes, our plane is coming. I just know it. And the thing that I love about that moment is like, this kid has no further evidence about what his plane will look like or he's taking entirely on the trust that he's placed in his dad. He, I mean, he doesn't even know exactly what it means to say our plane is coming. He can't exactly picture it. It's just his dad has promised our plane is coming. I can trust what my dad says and I can trust him in dad's hands. Dad's going to tell me when it's time to get on the plane. Dad will lead me down the gate. That's totally cool. And that was enough for this kid, but he believed it so fiercely. Our plane is coming. I just know it, he said. Um, and I think in some ways, like, that's really closer to how the Christian faith yeah. thinks about life beyond death. That it's, it's less about, I've got the diagram, here's how you get to heaven, uh, and uh, it's second start of the right straight down until morning, and more about Jesus says, I've got you covered. Can you trust that no matter what happens, I will hold on to you? And all we ever say maybe in response is, I know my plan is coming, I just know it, because Jesus has said and I can trust Jesus. So it's less about do I believe the correct facts about heaven and more do I trust this Jesus who says I've got you covered in this life and whatever it, whatever else is coming, when we leave this gate and go through it into what's next, I will trust that the, this, this one who says he loves me will carry me there. And that, that's enough. 
Because, I mean, even, you know, and it's one of those, you know, it's not a church joke, but, I mean, it's one of those things kind of like, the, you know, Peter at the gates, you know, why do you deserve to be in heaven? The answer is nothing that we've done except for our faith in Jesus. Yeah. You know, so I think you just nailed it on the head. Thanks to all of you for being a part of our experiment today. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See you later. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.